this. Well, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. We're going to read down through verse 20, and then we're pretty much going to go back through the text in reverse order, just in reverse thought. Why? Because that's how my brain pressed into it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, and Lord, we do. First, we want to tell you and confess to you that we trust you, Lord, in all things. You are the living God who created the heavens and the earth. You are in absolute control, Lord. So we trust you. We hope in you. We're confident in you. We're following you, Lord, to the best of our abilities, not in our own strength, but in the power that you give to us. How you've transformed us, given us new minds and new hearts, the new spirit that you've placed within, Lord. Thank you. We ask, Lord, we've already invited you here. We're recognizing that you're here, Lord, but we desire to hear your voice. We want to know you. We want to see you. We want to understand you. We want to glorify you. We want to be a blessing to one another as brothers and sisters. We want to be an encouragement and a strength. Let your will be done in all of those things in our lives, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Chapter 14 says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The man heard Paul speaking, Paul, observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. In that, he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And when and with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. 
Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, having persuaded the multitudes. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up went into this, and went into the city. And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So as we press into just the circumstances that are going on, for the last few weeks, um, a few weeks ago as we were in 1 Peter, it used, Peter used this phrase at the end of that letter that this is the true grace of God. As we stepped into 2 Peter, the very end of that leader letter, we were to grow in the grace of God. Last week, at the, towards the end of chapter 3, uh, sorry, chapter 13, it says that he was, uh, pers- he was persuading them to continue in the grace of God. And this morning, I've titled the message, The Word of His Grace. And we're gonna, that's where we're going to end in this whole idea in regards to the Word of His grace. But we're told the effect of what's going on in Paul's life at the very end of these circumstances, that you have the Jews that are coming from... Sorry, I don't need that. He... Uh, We have the Jews that are coming down from Antioch and from Iconium. They're traveling. So Antioch is 90 miles. Sorry, Iconium is 90 miles to the southeast of Antioch. Lystra is another 18 miles. Derby is another 55 miles. And it's saying these guys from Antioch and Iconium are following after Paul and Barnabas as they're communicating to the Jewish culture and to the Gentile culture. They're communicating to them the words of God's grace. They're communicating to them the gospel. And we're told in chapter 13 that the whole idea of envy is what is welling up within these men and these women as Paul and Barnabas are coming into the community. They've been invited to preach. They've been invited to give words of encouragement to the synagogue. They are preaching Jesus as the Messiah. And as the message is being preached, God is confirming that message through signs and wonders. Jews and Gentiles, are, they're interested. They're excited. They want to hear more. They're turning to Jesus Christ in faith for the salvation for their sins, for eternal life. And this is welling up the emotion of envy. It's the same emotion of envy that was welled up within the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they were witnessing Jesus. His authority, the people who were following him, ultimately you can sit in that that core emotion of envy in jealousy in regards to people turning to another teacher pride in regards to like who are you to take authority from me that that core issue of envy and jealousy is what led to Jesus's crucifixion culturally culturally here this the attitude of envy is what is circling through the religious community of the Jews and not just chattering but putting feet and action to the chatter following down because as they're spending a period of time in these communities, word is traveling back and forth what is going on and we're going to do something about these wayward teachers and they show up and they stone Paul. I, I, uh, can you imagine what it's like to get hit in the head with a rock? So, Paul's experience. Hold your place here and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because as Peter, as Paul, sorry, has stones being thrown at his head here. 
He's telling us in the letter to 2 Corinthians, it says, uh, this is chapter 11, verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. So in Paul's life, we're told this is the only time where he had rocks thrown at him. He suffered other physical persecutions. But this event in his life is he is sharing the gospel The community is misunderstanding what is going on, what they're witnessing. And in that misunderstanding, they are stirred up in the emotions to execute Paul. They take stones, they throw it at his head. Paul, they think Paul is dead and they drag his body outside of the city. So we're not told whether Paul actually died or whether he was just knocked out cold. Paul doesn't know whether he actually died or whether he was knocked out cold. We're not told that it's the prayer of the believers as they surround Paul and his body there. Is there are they praying for him and he resurrects from the dead and then he goes back into the city? I can't imagine the tenacity and the toughness, the faith that this guy had in God to stand up with a major headache Assuming that he has some pretty serious head wounds. My, my assumption as I think about Paul is he bore the, the marks, the scars on his face in regards to having stones thrown at him for the rest of his life. That is, he went from community to community later on and saying that he's bearing in his body the marks of the suffering that he has endured for Jesus Christ's sake, that these would have been some of the scars. So he gets up and goes back into the city. But this later, what is, he, what is he processing through? We're told in chapter 12, this is the assumption of the event that he's talking about. He says, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, which it's assumed that he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether the out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So again, this is, a, this is an assumption that while Paul is either dead or knocked out cold, that this is what he is seeing. It says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I, for I will speak in truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above major. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, and this is is what we're really trying to, to press in this morning, is we're talking about the word of his grace. Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. I'm going to ask this question now, and I'm going to ask it at the end of, of our time together. But as we talk about um, the word of his grace, we can sit in the message of the gospel. 
We can sit in a lot of the promises that we have from Jesus, from our great God in his word. But what is that specific word of his grace to you? You know, Paul can clearly define the word of Jesus' grace to Paul. Was Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever this thorn is, whatever this messenger of Satan was for him, in his trial, in his tribulation, in his weakness, in his circumstance, Jesus was preaching, communicating to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient. Again, this is a promise that I hold on to, to personally. That regardless of the circumstances life, I have to ask myself, like, is Jesus' grace sufficient for me? And what is his grace? His favor towards me? His kindness towards me? It's wrapped up his love, his mercy, his peace, his strength, his rest. What he has covered, what he has hidden, what he has forgiven me of. What I hope in him for the future, again, I just, when I am privately and even corporately worshiping the Lord with you guys, um, that longing, Lord, I can't wait to see your face. You're sitting here singing about, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. What is it going to be like to be ultimately and finally welcomed into his presence? to be made like him, to see him as he is because we will be like him. To whatever, can you imagine being able to experience the Lord with all of your senses right now, with all of your faculties and freedom and light? That's why when Jesus communicates, my grace is sufficient for you. Even as Paul is standing up, you know, we're told that you know, he's relating to us all of the things that he's suffered for the name of Christ. And there's a specific context as he's addressing the Corinthians. But he leads right into this. Uh, the, he, the, yes, he's been given an abundance of revelations, but he's not going to boast in these things. What is he going to boast in? He concludes this. I will, most rather, I will most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. Why? For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that promise from Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Here Paul is very weak. Doesn't have a head that's strong enough to withstand a stone or multiple stones. Soon to be dead, dragged out of the city. The... the Action of the stoning being initiated by the emotion of envy in other people. And that emotion of envy as it's communicating to those around is stirring up. We're told earlier that, that they were poisoning the minds of those who are listening to the gospel. But here, this, this whole idea of what's going on in Lystra is they come in. Paul is preaching the gospel. He's preaching the word of grace. And we're told that he witnesses a man that has, it is impossible for this human being to walk. He's been crippled since he was born. He has no strength in his legs. And as he's communicating the word, he's out in a public space. And it says that 
the Lord is the one that is causing Paul to attend to this individual. He's gazing on him intently. And as Paul has been communicating publicly, this man is demonstrating something on the outside that says that he is pressing into faith in Jesus Christ. He's listening to the message and he's believing. That's what this, this phrase here that he is, uh, that he had the faith to be healed. Again, this is really weird because, uh, again, as we sit in the coronavirus right now, people are going to be praying for healing. And there's, there's an attitude out there that if you have something that's wrong with you and you ask God to heal you, uh, the promise of God's word is that you have anything that you ask from God. So therefore, if you are not healed, then you lack the faith to be healed, which is an absolute lie from Satan. But we sit in here and there's this, there's this, there is a relationship between our trust in the Lord and God's action in our life. We are told that when Jesus went into Nazareth, he went into his hometown, not many people believed and said that he couldn't perform as many miracles there because there was a lack of faith. So there is, a, there is a hand-in-hand relationship between our trusting in the Lord and God's activity and action in our lives. And I don't know how all this works out at all other than God tells me to trust him. So in everything, what are we supposed to do? We obey, we trust him. Again, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here that these are... These are, this is the attitude that we are all attempting to press into as we are following Jesus. But we're told that he sees this man, there's something going on on the outside where he is clearly responding to the gospel that's being presented, and Paul commands this man to stand up straight. He stands up, he's healed. God is confirming the message that is being preached through this healing, And many of the people who are watching what occurs, they misunderstand the message. Because what do they do? So they witness the very true, very power of the God who created the heavens and the earth. Going to be identified as the living God here in this passage. These people watch this and they witness this action. But what is their conclusion in regards to what they just witnessed? Is their conclusion true? Yeah, this is where we need to constantly press into the Lord in prayer and ask God to speak what's true. We have that song that we pray and sing. Lord, here's my heart. Speak what's true. Not here's my heart and here's what I'm thinking and here's my rational and here's my wisdom and here's what I'm being told to think and here's logic. It's Lord, here's my heart Now, through your spirit, through your word, through my life, through your activity in my life, Lord, speak what is true. Because even again, as we sit in what's going on in our culture right now, do you misunderstand and have you misinterpreted what's going on? I I know that I have because I don't know what's true. I don't know if this is real and we are just applying wisdom in life. I don't know if this is all stirred up. I'm not pressing into the conspiracy theories, but men are wicked. Men will do all kinds of things for control and power. I have no idea what's real. So Lord, in this circumstance, I don't want to misunderstand what you're saying and what you're doing. So Lord, would you speak to my heart what is true? 
Would you speak to the hearts of those who have a, a voice of Jesus into my life, what is true, that will help us all process through our life experience and understanding? Because this community, this community is nuts. Jews and Gentiles in this community, they have a cultural religion, and when they witness a miracle happen, their misunderstanding and their misinterpretation is the gods have now taken on flesh, and the gods are now dwelling among us. They just did witness an act of the God, but their misunderstanding and their misapplication is they don't know who the true God is. They're listening to the message that Paul has been communicating, at least some of them. But when this miracle happens and it spreads through the community, there's misunderstanding where they're pressing into their cultural religion, what they've been taught since childhood. They're not pressing into asking the question, like, what just happened and what is real? And Paul and Barnabas have this, no! And again, the, the, tearing of, the tearing of clothes for this culture is this, it's this angst, it's this lament, it's the, there is something that just very wrong just occurred in relation to man and God. And it's this outward, no, tearing of garments. So every, this, this is not right is what's being communicated. And Paul is repeating, and again, he's using language that this culture would understand because he doesn't jump into a Jewish sermon. He jumps into a message. I have been communicating to you to turn away from these useless things, these worthless things, these vain things, and turn to the living God. There is a living God. There is a power who created the heavens and the earth and you and me. And I'm communicating this God to you, not these gods that you've been worshiping. I'm I'm preaching a message to turn away from those things. And this is, he's been communicating, again, the word of God's grace, the gospel of grace through the whole, you know, you can go back into chapter 13 and sit in the message for all of the content that he is preaching about Jesus. But this is, if you pay attention to how I pray, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, and I often identify God as the creator of the heavens and the earth. Because that, for me, that grounds my, me personally, it grounds me where I need to be as I am approaching God. For me, I had to overcome the, um, the question, do I believe that God exists or don't I believe that God exists? And my initial answer for that question was just looking at nature. For me, I come to the conclusion of how can I not believe in God when I look at nature, when I just look at myself. Um, I don't buy evolution at all that that is the process of how we came to be. So for me, I land on this whole idea that there is a living God. And because there is a living God, he has demand. If he's my creator, he's my master. He owns me in every way. So it's, it's that constant, Lord, you are my creator. You have created the heavens and the earth. You have created me. I understand that this creation is broken because of sin, that death, disease, violence, 
lust, all the atrocities that man does against man, all the blasphemy that, God, that man does against God, all of these things have its root in our disobedience and our distance from who God is. And then this communication of grace that God became like us so that he could restore us to his original intent which is perfect, holy oneness and communion with him. You know, so when I see this phrase, the living God, this is everything that's being communicated to me. When it, it just immediately when I see that phrase or when I see almighty God or when I see creator, when I see Savior, when I see these words in the Bible, this is where my heart personally locks into um, my relationship with God, my worship of God, my prayer to him, how I interpret and uh, communicate his word. And that backs us into this, this word, uh, this phrase, the word of his grace. This is, uh, Luke is the only one who uses this phrase in the Bible. And at, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is going to Jerusalem, it's a famous last message where he is speaking to the Ephesian elders. They've gathered to him in a different location and he's communicating to him. These are his words. This is Acts 20, verse 23. Um, or verse 22. He says, See, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Paul says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. And the language is literally, none of these matters, these, these things that even the Holy Spirit is communicating to me, none of these matters, they don't make me. And I love it because this is what I've titled this whole like umbrella as we're traveling through Acts is his workmanship. None of these things that other people or even the Holy Spirit here in regards to here's what's going to happen to you as you go to Jerusalem. Those events that are going to transpire in my life, they don't make me. God makes me. And he continues on here saying, I don't hold my life costly to myself. Jesus' life is costly. His sacrifice was costly and precious. He is the one that gives value to my life. I don't give value to my own life. I don't hold my life costly to myself. It's costly to Jesus. So that I may finish my race, my foot race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. And here it is, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 32, he continues, Now, brethren, I commend you, I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace. There's our phrase. Which, listen to how this is defined. The word of his grace, it's able, it has the power to build you up, to construct you. We're all in process. And the word of his grace not only has the power to build you up, but it has the power to, to grant to you, to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. All of us 
made holy, set apart by who Jesus is and what he's done. So going back to Acts 14, we have this testimony that here they're staying in the community of Iconium for a long time. They feel the need to stay in this community because Jews have come into the community, the unbelieving Jews that are there, those that are there coming from Antioch, they're poisoning the minds of the brethren. So there's a need for them to remain because there is an an opposing and poisonous voice coming against the minds of brothers and sisters in the church. So they're staying there, and it says that they're speaking boldly in the Lord, which when we pray to God for courage, it has everything to do with our voice. When we approach God's throne of grace boldly in the name of Jesus Christ, it's it's approaching him with bold words with words of truth, how he defines us, not how we define ourselves, his incredible throne of grace. And then it says that the Lord, he is the one who is bearing witness to the word of his grace. So whether it's the word of his grace, whether it's the gospel, whether it's the word of God, all being referred to, uh, all these different uh, titles being referring to the same thing, God's word, God's bearing witness granting that signs and wonders would be uh, to be done by their hands. So, as we just get really intimate together as as brothers and sisters, we're sitting in our current cultural climate. And And the question that I want you to answer in your personal relationship with God as you go spend time with God and what is the word of his grace for you? We can all sit in commonality with the word of his grace is here is our God who sent his son and named him Jesus and he named him Jesus because he was going to save his people from their sins. We can all sit in the word of his grace towards us that we are forgiven of all of our crimes, our rebellions, our ignorance, our obstinance, our our intentional acts against God, our unintentional acts, um, all those ways that we make ourselves unclean in, in regards to that contrast between a holy God and an unclean thing or an unclean person, we can all sit in the word of his grace towards us in what we have been forgiven of. And not just our before Jesus days, but our since we've been walking with him. This morning, yesterday, last week, last month, last year. Are his words not gracious to you? So we can sit in many of his promises and not only just what he has forgiven us, what he is supplying for us today, that our God is our provider, that he hears us, that he is present, that he doesn't forsake us, that we are going to be glorified, that we are going to abide in a new heaven and a new earth and a new body with him, with one another for all eternity. These are words of grace. As you look at your history and your walk with Jesus, 
How many, how many moments can you say God brought in words of grace for you in an, in an instant where that's exactly what you needed to hear? And even in those instances, you just heard exactly what you were asking God to tell you. In some of those instances, you praised the Lord for it and you obeyed him and everything was great. And other times when you heard the word of his grace, you were rebellious and obstinate and you didn't do what he told you to do. And he still didn't forsake you. He still didn't stop pursuing you. He still didn't stop loving you. So again, this is your challenge. This is your, this is your homework. This is your, your, for your own prayer time. As, I'm, as I am sitting in communicating the word of God to you, I am looking for the last month. All we have been doing is talking about God's incredible grace. And in the last month, I can give you a history of items and circumstances and how God has given to me favor that I don't deserve. Things where I've been weak in, where he says that his grace is sufficient. Things where I want to boast in in myself in some fashion, where he directs me to, to boast in my weaknesses that Jesus would be strong, that Jesus would get the glory, that I only exist because he has created me, that I'm only where I am in life because he is the one who is led. I have that responsibility to have faith and to press in him and to trust and to obey. But again, we're on this foundation of grace and this overarching umbrella of grace. And when I press into allowing God to show to me and demonstrate to me how he has brought into my life his word of grace continually. And not just that, but how he has done signs and wonders in in my own life. Whether, and again, we want to continue to pray for these things. I am begging God that he, in our community, that he would do signs and wonders bearing the testimony of truth to the word of his grace that we communicate to ourselves, to one another, and to our community every single day. God, do it again. Just like as Paul's going to these communities, I pray that there are miraculous healings where this person has been broken since the day they were born, and here they are whole in Jesus. Jesus is true. God, do it again. So on that note, um, you know, the president has defined today as a national day of prayer. This is a, 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 um, whether it's at his instruction or not, I think it's at the Lord's instruction. Um, We have a lot to pray about. um, And I'm done talking, so I think that we should all be praying together Um, that you should be praying, that you should be given the opportunity. What I like about this morning, I'm going to turn this off right now. What I like about this morning...